You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, good morning, America. Welcome to a veteran story on AmericasWebRadio.com. I'm your host, Pete Mecca. Folks, the United States Coast Guard is America's oldest seagoing service. Their motto, Semper Pilatus, in English means always ready. One of their catchphrases, I think, is more to the point. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Our cats serve as an officer in this elite branch of service, both in the States and in the death-defying waters of Vietnam. Art, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Pete. It's a pleasure being here. I appreciate you being on. Uh, let's just get some background on you, Art. Where were you born and raised? Uh, I was born in New York City, New York, um, and raised on Long Island. Uh, first in the New York City part of Long Island and in high school in Nassau County, just outside of the city limits. Okay, well, I, I know this is a silver curveball, but New York's changed a little bit since you grew up. <laughs> it, it, it has indeed. <laughs> All right, uh, when you got out of high school, why did you apply for the Coast Guard? What made you interested in the Coast Guard? Thank you. I love easy questions, Pete. Um, I grew <laughs> up uh, close to Long Island is an island. I grew up close to the water. Uh, my dad, in fact, owned a hunting and fishing tackle store that we lived behind from about my age four to age 10. So I always had a, a close association with the water. Um, the Coast Guard Academy was free, and uh, we were not uh, the wealthiest people in town. Uh, I needed a free education, and it seemed like just an ideal combination. Well, that's one thing I didn't know about the Coast Guard Academy. Let's let's go there. Tell us about the Coast Guard Academy and uh, your time spent there. You know, your studying, your classmates, and things like that. Sure will. Uh, there are first five service academies uh, in the United States. Uh, the Coast Guard Academy is the only one that doesn't require a congressional appointment, uh, as do the other branches, which is like uh, Annapolis, West Point, uh, Air Force Academy, Merchant Marine Academy. And uh, primarily that is a reason, or a reason for that is that uh, it's not part of the Department of Defense, but rather originally was part of the Treasury Department and now falls under the governance of Homeland Security. Uh, it's a very rigorous program. Um, there were initially maybe 6,000 applicants the year I applied, uh, which was wow. for 1959. Um, that was a while ago, wasn't it? About 300 <laughs> showed up for what they... <laughs> 300 showed up for what they call Swab Summer. Um, there's a, a serious uh, hazing uh, pros- uh, period that you go through. They call it Beast Barracks at, at West Point. Uh, they've got a similar name as Naval Academy, etc. Um, at the summer's end, which is less than two months, uh, the 300 who showed up had been whittled down to about 150 who started the academy uh, with me as the class of 63. 92 out of those 150 graduated, um, and it, it was in part uh, a, a trial by survival and in part uh, just hunkering down and doing everything you needed to do. Um, the academy is very, very, very vigorous. Uh, you're up early, you go to sleep late, uh, you graduate with uh, the equivalent of well over 
200 credits uh, in the wow. equivalent college undergraduate system. Well, you've got to learn about anti-submarine warfare. Um, you've got to learn about the radar. You've got to learn seamanship. There are a lot of you go to school year round. It, it's very very vigorous. Well, it sounds like it. Uh, my goodness, that's some things I did not know about the Coast Guard Academy. All right, well, after graduation, what was your military obligation and uh, your first assignment? Uh, when I graduated, um, ob- obligation was four years. Now I believe it is six years, and that is in part, let's say, uh, a payback for uh, free education. Okay. Uh, what was your uh, first assignment after graduation? Uh, I was uh, actually fortunate, I think. Uh, I was selected as one of uh, 12 classmates to oversee the uh, summer program for the uh, new arriving, this would be the class of 64, uh, cadets. They were called swabs, and if you don't know what a swab <laughs> is, it's the uh, mop that you use to wipe the deck of a ship, so it's pretty low down. Um <laughs> yeah, and and we had to make sure uh, my my overarching responsibility was to make sure that for the newly arrived swab um, that hazing did not get so far out of hand that uh, somebody could get hurt, if you will. Huh. All right. Well, well, exactly what did you do for the new recruits? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, they went through a very very rigorous. If you can picture this, you take somebody who's been a high school, pretty intelligent, if you will, high school graduate um, who has never had to conform to military requirements. So um, if we we think about um, any of the military induction programs, like uh, I guess um, in movies and television, you see things like the uh, the... the um, the sergeant who uh, is in charge of um, making sure the shoes are polished, beds are tight, um, uniforms are proper, uh, and, and the slightest infraction causes somebody to have to do 100 push-ups or run six miles or whatever. Well, all, all of that existed at the Coast Guard Academy, um, many times tied in with either marching or rowing. And, and we did a lot of that. The Academy is uh, built on... Uh, the, the slopes of the uh, Thames River uh, in New London, Connecticut. So there's water close by, and we got to know it extremely well. I bet. Uh, um, Art, can you still run that six miles? Uh, I can, Keith. All right. I was lucky if I can run six feet. <laughs> All right. Describe your first seagoing assignment. Okay. Um, the 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 Coast Guard Academy uses a, a, what they call a billet system, and based on your uh, the number you are in your graduating class, um, the number one person gets their first choice, and you have a, a listing of all the available places that you can go. Um, I was fortunate enough to get an assignment on the Coast Guard Cutter Madrona, which is an aids to navigation vessel. Um, I was the operations officer. It's a 180-foot-long, uh, they call them buoy tenders in, in common terms, and that, that was um, out of Portsmouth, Virginia. Um, but that was not my first uh, seagoing experience because I spent my high school years working on fishing boats out of the uh, south shore of Long Island, uh, first before I could drive by riding my bicycle about 10 miles to get there, 
and then after that, um, being able to drive down. But it was truly a, a labor of love, and uh, I learned a whole lot about uh, dealing with uh, the bays and harbors and uh, offshore, but close in offshore waters. Uh, from the South Shore of Long Island, and that stood me well in my future, as we'll get to, I think, later on in this discussion. Right. Art, when I interviewed you a while back, you mentioned uh, when you're on that first seagoing assignment that you also, uh, I guess, babysat the Chesapeake Bay Tunnel. Uh, yeah. Explain to the, <laughs> explain, yeah. Explain to the uh, listeners uh, why you, uh, the Coast Guard, is assigned to the Chesapeake Chesapeake Bay Tunnel and uh, what your duties were to do. Would you go ahead and talk about it? Sure, can. Uh, well, uh, an aid to navigation vessel, um, a Coast Guard aid to navigation vessel, is required or responsible for um, primarily all of what, what you call buoys, which is uh, those big objects that float in the water and have lights on them typically. In some cases, uh, maybe they're not lighted, um, which keep ships from leaving the channels and running aground. So, um, and, and in this case, we were responsible for all the aids to navigation um, in, in Chesapeake Bay, in the rivers associated with Chesapeake Bay, and offshore from uh, Ocean City, Maryland, to Moorhead City, North Carolina, which was the 5th Coast Guard District. In the middle of that, um, something called the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel was built. Uh, and it connected the eastern shore of uh, what's called the Delmarva Peninsula with uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, so that instead of um, anybody, let's say, on the eastern shore having to go up north and then come around and go back down south to get from one end to the other, they built the Bay Bridge Tunnel, and it was... Uh, the tunnel portion was to allow shipping to come in and out of uh, Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and one of the things you had to be sure of was that no ships ran into the Bay Bridge Tunnel. So I literally was the person who stood on the, um, the rock jetties uh, above the tunnel and put an X with spray paint on the spot where the navigation lights were to go. Um, kind of unique, but the lights are still there and nobody's hit it yet, so I guess I did a decent job. Uh, that would be pretty much a disaster if a, a deep draft ship hit the hit the tunnel. Uh, it would, it would. <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, th- that would be some kind of a disaster. Wow. Okay. After your promotion to uh, lieutenant junior grade, you served aboard the um, United States Coast Guard cutter Arapus. Is that the correct pronunciation, Arapus? The the Arbutus. Arbutus, okay. Tell us about that. Okay, the Arbutus, first of all, the Arbutus is a a similar uh, aid to navigation vessel, in this case um, based on Staten Island uh, in New York Harbor, and um, we were responsible for 3rd Coast Guard District, which is like um, the Hudson River, Long Island Sound, uh, from Ocean City, Maryland on the south, up to um, Point Judas, Rhode Island in the north. Um, and a very, very busy shipping area, um, being executive officer, uh, your second in command, the responsibilities jump very, very quickly. Uh, the Coast Guard, I think, uh, does a really good job of taking junior officers and throwing a lot of responsibility at them quickly. Uh, when I got to Staten Island, and by the way, uh, in the first four years while I was in the service, my wife and I moved 11 times. 
Um, oh. Thanks, thanks to Uncle, Uncle Sam and different assignments and um, that that sort of thing. So we were pretty good at the, um, hitching up our gear and getting on to the next place we had to be. Um, shortly after I got to uh, Staten Island and the Arbutus, uh, we got orders, um, which I had not expected, to go to Vietnam, and I had basically uh, two weeks, and I was out of there. Um, wow. Uh, what kind of armament does a Coast Guard cutter have, like the uh, Arbutus? What, what kind of uh, defense mechanism do you have? Well, uh, the Arbutus, of course, is a, a peacetime. Um, it, it doesn't. It's not an armed vessel, if you will. You have uh, um, rifles and, and small arms that you might use uh, in, in instances. But this was back in uh, 1961 or 1964, I should say, and uh, um, it was a very different world. So most Coast Guard vessels that were involved in aid to navigation didn't really carry any arms. We carried things uh, um, that were used in our trade to be able to uh, change uh, out the, the batteries and the big buoys um, and uh, to be able to break ice in the wintertime uh, to keep the harbors free. Wow. Uh, okay. A lot of responsibility there. Now, you got your orders from Vietnam. Uh, folks, we're going to our first break. And we'll be back shortly with Art Katz, United States Coast Guard Academy graduate, and uh, getting his orders for Vietnam and going overseas. Stand by, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. And want to uh, put this little footnote in. Uh, tomorrow on David's Pick, we have a very interesting guest. And we're gonna, for the older generation, like myself, that remember it, we're going to be talking about the North Korean capture of the Pueblo. And that was during uh, the Vietnam War. And um, he's quite a, Mr. Boyles is quite a historian on it. And uh, it's going to be a very, very interesting uh, interview. And I think that you'll find that even if you remember it, the details that we were getting then weren't the details that we'll find out about tomorrow, the truth tomorrow about the Pueblo. So with that, let's get back to Pete and his guest. And Pete, it's all yours. Thank you, David. Uh, we're talking with Art Katz, United States Coast Guard Academy graduate. Art, you're on uh, Coast Guard cutters off the East Coast with the United States Coast Guard, and suddenly you get orders. You say unexpectedly for Vietnam. You really weren't expecting that, huh? Not at all. <laughs> all right. Uh, why was the Coast Guard assigned to Vietnam? Uh, part of me still asks that question, Pete, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> the realistic answer is that um, back in uh, 1965 on a uh, routine Navy uh, 
air patrol along the coast of Vietnam, one of the aircraft spotted a, uh, uh, a shiny reflection uh, in, of a metallic object, uh, the sun reflecting off it, um, in the area of Vung Ro, which is south of Cameron Bay. Um, and they uh, re- returned from their normal uh, flight pattern, uh, checked it out, and uh, were able to discover some sort of a trawler or fishing vessel that was camouflaged with banana leaves and that sort of thing. And further investigation uh, turned out that the, the trawler was unloading supplies to the Viet Cong. It, it had been obviously disguised as a fishing trawler to get there. And and when you think about it, that made so much sense. Uh, the, the Viet Cong were known to uh, be supplying, uh, or the Viet, North Vietnamese were known to be supplying the Viet Cong via the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Um, but one trawler could uh, deliver the same amount of supplies via the South China Sea in a week or less that would take six months on the Ho Chi Minh Trail and um, two or 3,000 carriers, if you will, with their bicycles and their backpacks. Um, I know that uh, some of the trawlers that were subsequently captured um, were... Their cargo capacity was in excess of a hundred tons. So, if you wow. equated that to, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, if you equated that, they were steel hulled, hundred to one hundred twenty feet long. And if you took the equivalent, um, I know one of the trawlers that was captured, and, and some amount of when the captures don't go down easily, um, there were explosions. So, some amount of the weaponry was lost uh, underwater, but. Uh, that this particular trawler uh, had over uh, 1,200 weapons on it, and that included rifles, pistols, um, machine guns, um, recoilless rifles, etc. And it had over uh, 350,000 rounds of ammunition. So stopping one trawler um, saved a, a huge number of American lives, number one, and obviously put a, a major dent in the way that uh, the North Vietnamese were able to supply the Viet Cong. Wow. Uh, okay. All that uh, now, now, I, I'm sorry. I guess, Go ahead. I, guess, I guess a lot. That's okay. I guess a lot of folks will say, "Well, why didn't the Navy handle all that? Why, why was the Coast Guard used?" Tell the folks why the Coast Guard uh, got this job. Sure. Um, in, in times of war, the Coast Guard comes under the Department of the Navy. Um, this was not yet a time of war. But when you think about the Navy, the Navy basically um, is a deep water operation. Uh, they did not have um, vessels which were shallow enough in draft, meaning how much water they needed to float on uh, to, to properly uh, create any sort of a, a, a blockade. Um, and not so much in the northern part of Vietnam, but the southern part of Vietnam from the Mekong River Delta south. Uh, and, and if you think, let, let's see, the equivalent would be the east coast of the United States and the, the uh, east coast of uh, Vietnam are roughly the same, 1,500 miles. Wow. And, and about the, oh, from, let's say, um, Virginia, North Carolina down, that, that is a very flat uh, alluvial area that's... Um, Primarily, the primary geographic uh, um, feature is the Mekong River and the Mekong River Delta. So it's a big, big flat area where um, 
you could be the, the tide runs about ten feet. Uh, you could huh. be six miles. Yeah, you could be six miles offshore um, in in four feet of water or five feet of water, um, and six hours later you're you're aground. Um, other thing that uh, just because it's useful information is um, there were no um, current charts. A chart is uh, the equivalent of a, a map uh, on land, and a chart is the, the equivalent uh, for waterborne. But the, the, the charts that I had um, were French, from the French Indochina period, if you will, and, and were over 50 years old. And uh, <laughs> they, they were not much use for us, to put it very <laughs> simply. Uh, we had to figure things out for, for ourselves. Okay. Uh, uh, now, the ship, the... the I guess you call them boats or ships. Uh, the, the craft that you used, uh, how were they outfitted for protection? And what kind of hulls did they have and superstructures and things like that? Uh, great question. Uh, these were uh, Coast Guard 82-foot-long, 5-foot um, draft, meaning they, they could, if you had 6 feet of water, you, you could uh, drive them through. Um, they were designed for search and rescue. They were steel-hulled, extremely seaworthy. They had an aluminum superstructure, so they bobbed around a lot, but they could handle very, very, very rough seas. Uh, And they were not armed, per se, for search and rescue work, obviously. Um, But we... uh, They were um, fitted, if you will, World War time with 550 caliber machine guns, which is an awesome weapon. Um, we had two on the stern, two at midships, and one, if you're familiar with an over and under shotgun and, and rifle, um, we had one on top of a, a pedestal mounted 81 millimeter mortar on the bow. And by the way, that uh, pedestal mounted mortar, that was uh, the first of its kind ever used in uh, warfare. Um, it, it was actually... Most people, if you've seen mortars and fire, a mortar sits on the ground, you drop a shell in, uh, when the shell hits the bottom of the mortar, it's hitting the firing pin, and it, it shoots off on the ground. You see them in the Army. So, so they're, they're not used, um, they had never been used in a trigger-fired kind of environment before, but this allowed us to um, be able to swivel them, pick them up and down, and when you think about the fact that a boat is moving in three dimensions. Uh, they became a very, very effective weapon. We had um, white phosphorus mortar shells, which are uh, affectionately known as Willie Peter, and that is uh, uh, something where it, it burns as soon as it hits whatever it, 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 its uh, target is. We also had uh, high explosive shells, which we could use uh, as for gunfire support missions and, and other weaponry like that. Um, you also asked me about the, the, the power plant. The, the boats sure. were designed for long distances. Uh, um, we had twin diesel engines, and I, I could uh, I could cruise my boat um, 1,500 miles without refueling. Um, but we also wow. had two gas. Yeah, yeah. It, it was really you, you needed that because if you went on a search and rescue mission, you were out just going back and forth, combing an area, look, looking for. Um, whatever the, the target was. Um, the boats also had uh, twin gas turbine engines, which would give you <coughs> enough power to 
to run them at uh, 22 to 24 miles an hour if and when you needed it. Um, I, I, I guess I would say I love my boat. Um, the steel hull was wonderful. The aluminum superstructure wouldn't stop a 22 caliber bullet. And, uh, that part was maybe <laughs> a little more daunting. <laughs> All right. Now, for us land lovers who are not uh, familiar with ships and boats, you said the ship moves in three dimensions. Explain that to me. Sure. Uh, if you, you think about, um, well, if anybody's ever been just to the ocean and, and uh, you're bobbing up and down along the seashore, the waves are pushing you in and out, and the waves are pushing you up and down. As a wave comes in, you rise up, then you come down again, so the boat is moving in all, all three dimensions, and, and it's a lot more pronounced. Um, if you've got an 82-foot boat and you're in, let's say, 10-foot seas, because um, you're going up 10, you're going down 10, and you're going side to side at the same time. Uh, in fact, uh, they have over in, in uh, Southeast Asia monsoon, and during the monsoon period, you have almost three months where the waves are 10 feet or higher, uh, and you literally have no rest for three months because you're just getting knocked from side to side, and uh, up and down uh, during that entire uh, very ugly uh, weather period. Uh, you've already made me seasick, Art. <laughs> <laughs> it, it happens, believe me. <clears throat> I bet it did. Okay, uh, February of 1966, you're assigned to Vung Tao. Uh, describe your duties there, Art. Okay, let me let me also interject something. Um, sure. Uh, the way we got to Vong Tau was uh, the 82-foot boats were put on big freighters and shipped to the Philippines, to the Navy base at Subic Bay. And there we got um, our, uh, we, we met our crews, we trained, we got all our military uh, communications equipment, um, we learned how to fire our 50-caliber machine guns, um, we became a, from a from a 10-person group brought together uh, into a very effective fighting force. And, of course, we also learned things like uh, survival training, uh, damage control, reviews, who was going to do what, when, where, and how. And, and that was a critical period of time. And one of the key things that um, I'm very pleased that I was able to do was um, we, we trained at night in pitch black um, so that uh, when we were in a situation in Vietnam where there are no lights, basically. You had to be able to find everything in the dark, and you didn't want to use flashlights because a flashlight meant you were a target. So um, from there, we sailed our boats 1,200 miles to Vung Tau, and Vung Tau is actually a beautiful beach area on a peninsula in South Vietnam uh, where the South China Sea meets the Saigon River, which is 30 or 40 miles upstream, and um, there we were basically, that was our base, although the base was still in the construction when we got there, but we were out on patrol for one to two weeks and then back in for a day and then back out to sea again, unless there was some battle damage to the boat. Uh, we had 12 boats stationed at Vung Tau, which was uh, Division 13 of Coast Guard Squadron 1, um, and there were two other divisions, one based in Da Nang and another based in Antoy in the very south part of uh, Vietnam. You said you were out on patrol like one to how many weeks? One to two weeks, depending on uh, 
varying circumstances. And did you uh, get refueled? Yes, we did actually, and that was done with what what uh, the naval jargon is unrep, which means underway replenishment. And there was a whole um, whole program, if you will, of um, supply ships and tankers, which would drive up and down the coast, but well off the coast, uh, where they could be in safe deep water. And we would, when we needed it, we would set up uh, an unrep. We would leave the coastal area, go further out into international waters, um, meet the underway uh, replenishment uh, the fueling ship, get more fuel, and then go back on station. Holy cow. All right, Art, we're going to our second break. Uh, folks, stay with us. Very interesting interview. We'll be right back. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. And this is a good point. GoArmy.com are, if you're a graduating senior in high school or you've completed college and you don't know exactly what you want to do, we recommend highly that you look at the military. I can guarantee you that some branch of the military has what you want to do for the rest of your life. And it's a great thing to have on your resume that... uh, You were in the military, and if you're looking and you haven't decided, then look at the military. With that being said, we want to also acknowledge the fact that we work very closely with the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, which is in downtown Atlanta. The director is Colonel Rick White, retired, and uh, Rick does just a superb job. And it's right across, it's in the Floyd building, right across the street from the Georgia State Capitol. So if you're in Atlanta, either visiting or you live here and you haven't been to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame, please do. And by the way, the induction ceremony that had to be delayed is set now for April the 3rd at the Healing Wall in Johns Creek, which is in Newtown Park. So put that on your calendar, April the 3rd, for the induction ceremony of the 2020 class of folks that will be brought in, inducted into the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. So let's get back. I'm finding this extremely interesting about what the Coast Guard did. And uh, if you don't mind me asking a question, Pete, uh, I assume that uh, the Coast Guard was quite ecstatic about uh, President Trump signing the Blue Water Bill. And back to you, Pete. Thanks, David. Um, We're with Art Katz, United States Coast Guard Academy graduate. Uh, Art, you are uh, in Vung Tau for your assignment to Vietnam. Uh, describe your first action in the area known as uh, the Rungsat Secret Zone. What in the world was that? Uh, the Rungsat Secret Zone, <laughs> very dear to my heart, not really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, I describe Vung Tau being where the Saigon River empties into the South China Sea. And, and that was also the place where all of the merchant vessels 
that were bringing supplies to Vietnam, or most of them, um, would stage before they would run upriver. Um, and most folks really don't realize it, but over 90% of the supplies that came to Vietnam from the United States came by merchant vessel during the time of the Vietnam uh, conflict. Um, so the Rungsat Secret Zone is... Um, for those of you who make it, may, maybe make it pretty simple, if uh, you're familiar with the Hudson River, New Jersey would be the Rungsat Secret Zone, except that it was about a 400-square-mile area of uh, mangrove swamp that was completely controlled by the Viet Cong, um, and it was an area where they used it for training, they used it for um, developing uh, troop groups, um, they used it to uh, try to sink merchant vessels going up the um, Saigon River, and um, it, it was a, a haven for them, and uh, it, it rarely was penetrated by um, Allied forces unless it was some sort of uh, um, secret uh, clandestine activity with either a SEAL operation or a Marine patrol going in, etc. Et um, the other thing about it is it's swamp and it's crisscrossed by waterway. Uh, the one thing about it that it didn't have was it didn't have its own water supply so uh, or food supply, realistically. So even though the Viet Cong controlled it, they had to bring food and water in from somewhere else. And that was typically by crossing the Soy Rap River into the Mekong Delta uh, area. Is that a good description, Pete? That's a great description. Uh, describe your first action in that area. Okay. Knowing knowing that um, the Viet Cong had to move supplies or people back and forth from the uh, Mekong Delta side, um, one night uh, we had been in country less than a month. Uh, we were on patrol uh, in the middle of the night in the Soy Rap River. Uh, we detected a sampan heading from the Rungsat zone to the Mekong Delta side, which would be from east to west. Uh, we headed on an intercept course. Um, I put the searchlight on them. As soon as I did, they started shooting at us. Um, we shot back, and uh, the, the, the good guys won, if you will. Um, there were, <laughs> I think... I think uh, uh, we, we killed seven. I know we wounded a couple because we we brought them aboard and including with them was a, a North Vietnamese colonel with a, a satchel full of um, very important intelligence papers. So it was a, a certainly a good mission and um, uh, I guess I, I'm most proud of the fact that um, not only during that one but during my entire time in Vietnam we on the Point Cyprus which was my boat um, had no men either killed or wounded in action um, and maybe it was just that we were very good at ducking at the right time, but either way, wonderful feeling. Uh, what a what a prize, a North Vietnamese colonel! Wow. Yes, sir. Uh, well, oh. <laughs> I know that you you interdicted uh, the, the the boats, the the sampans and junks. Uh, that can be very dangerous. Describe what it's like boarding one of these enemy sampans or junks. Uh, okay. Um, very, uh, I guess to say, very dangerous and nerve-wracking, um, and one of the things you have to be careful of, and I'll get to it in just a moment, is 
that it doesn't become too routine, meaning you never want to let your guard down, uh, because we would bring our 82-foot boat alongside um, sampans that were maybe 30 or 40 feet long, and they might be uh, reached two feet above the waterline, and we were eight to 10 feet above the waterline. What that meant, number one, was we could not use our 50-caliber machine guns because we couldn't depress them low enough to use on a vessel that was that size. So we had to be uh, small arms ready with M16s, M1 carbines, uh, 45-caliber handguns, etc. Um, and come alongside them, tie up with them, if you will, uh, we had a Vietnamese Navy liaison officer on board. He would inspect their papers. We would look for contraband. Uh, and I, I, would, I would also tell you that um, we were, we did a lot of humanitarian work, if you will. Uh, food, water, first aid, etc. Uh, I think in that case we did more good uh, than harm. Uh, the other thing I would tell you is during the time that uh, I was there, we boarded uh, over a thousand junks and sampans. So uh, during daylight hours or evening hours, because at night they didn't—they didn't have like here in the United States, you're required to have navigational lights. They had none. So at night they would just uh, drift. And in many cases, the sampans were their homes, not just uh, um, their fishing boats. Uh, and um, you think about. I, I was uh, there roughly 10 months, take out two to three months for the monsoon. So in eight months, boarding a thousand times, you were boarding four, five, six times per day, which meant, uh, and that was a half an hour evolution, and, and it was, you, you had to be on your guard all the time because it would take nothing for somebody in a sandpan to just throw a hand grenade up. Uh, eight feet or ten feet, and um, you would have a disaster on your hands. Um, it was never easy, uh, and you could never be relaxed. Uh, one of the things I tell people is that in the time I was there, I don't know that I ever slept more than about two hours at a stretch, uh, because every time we had contact, I had to be on on uh, on deck. Um, that, had to, that, that had to be nerve-wracking, never knowing that hand grenade was going to come at your ship. You're, you're so correct. <laughs> Long time All right, ago. I remember, yeah, I remember you mentioned about an encounter. It was uh, your ship against three. Tell me about that one. Uh, one of my my favorites, if you will, uh, because it turned out well. Uh, we, we had, the area that we patrolled was basically um, offshore of the Mekong Delta, um, and, and that general area, which is maybe the, the southern quarter of Vietnam or the southern third of Vietnam. And one of the things that uh, our intelligence had determined was that the Viet Cong were moving arms and ammunition and people through the Mekong Delta, but never coming out to the coast. Um, there was just a, an unbelievable uh, inland maze of waterways and canals uh, think of a hundred uh, intercoastal waterways in the United States, uh, all in the Mekong Delta, and a boat could literally navigate from uh, Saigon all the way to Cambodia uh, without ever going into the South China Sea. And some of these junks, not the sampans, but the junks were very seaworthy vessels uh, made of teak wood, 
um, bigger than railroad ties. So uh, they might be 70, 80, 100 feet long, and um, they, they were a major form of uh, commerce in those areas of the, of the world. Um, in, in this case, having received the intelligence that they were doing this shipping, um, I, I actually, I'm not sure why I did it now, but <laughs> at the time I requested permission to do a nighttime patrol clandestinely uh, up one of the major river mouths and rivers of the Mekong Delta, of which there are five rivers, um, to see what I could find in the middle of the night. Um, and I mentioned the tide earlier, but we picked uh, a night which was going to be pitch black because the, the darkest nights were when the Vietcong did the most uh, nighttime activity. I went in at dusk uh, and low tide, knowing that if I needed to, if I got in trouble and I needed to get out of there in a hurry, later on it would be high tide. As I mentioned, you got a, a 12 foot tidal range. So um, we went in even maybe bumping bottom in a few cases and had to navigate around uh, all the, the fishing nets and the sandbars. And uh, certainly that is a, a, one of those times where what I learned uh, as, as a kid in and out of the bays and uh, um, inlets of uh, the South Shore of Long Island, how to read that water and get in there. Once you got over the, the mouth of the delta, in the river itself, it might be 40, 50, 60 feet deep. Uh, wow. We got in. We got in at dark. Yeah, we, we went upstream far enough so that the incoming tide offset the outgoing uh, current of the river. And I just cut the engine and we watched. Uh, after a couple of hours in the middle of the night in this mile-wide section of the river, uh, three big junks, uh, over 70 feet in length, if you will, uh, in a triangular formation came out from the uh, eastern bank headed for the western bank um we knew they were bad guys because uh there were no good guys if you will in that area at that time based on uh everything we had turned up intelligence wise ahead of time when the three got to about the middle of the river where they were not going to be able to get to one of the smaller canals in a hurry uh, uh i started up our engine and drove us into the middle of the three, so it's like coming into an arrowhead from the backside. Um, I know uh, some people say, well, this is not the smartest thing one could do, <laughs> against one, uh, perhaps, but it, it, there was really very good reason for, for my decision. Uh, when I described my boat in the 550 caliber machine guns, you had one in the front, two in the middle, and two in the back. So if you took that equivalent arrowhead, if you will, of machine guns and drove it into the middle of the three, I was able to use all five of the 50 caliber machine guns at one time on all three of the targets. Um, we had a searchlight overhead, uh, which I controlled from the bridge. Um, I gave the order to open fire. Uh, I can tell you that one of the junks blew up uh, in a mushroom-shaped cloud that the impact of the explosion was so great that it literally knocked a couple of uh, my men off their feet. We were maybe 50 yards away, 70 yards away, somewhere in that range. Uh, oh, I saw okay. bodies flying through the air. Um, it had to be jammed with, jam-packed with uh, all sorts of uh, high explosives. 
Um, and, and it literally created a small mushroom-shaped cloud, which I can still see to this day in my uh, mind's eye. Uh, I know Art, I, I hate to, Art, I hate to interrupt you on this. we got to go to our last break, and we're going to be right back, folks, with the uh, three-against-one fight on, on one of the rivers in Vietnam. Stand by, folks. How exciting. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Art Katz, uh, United States Coast Guard Academy graduate. He's on a uh, Coast Guard boat, Vietnam, up against three enemy vessels. One disappeared in a mushroom cloud. Thank God that wasn't a nuclear mushroom cloud. Uh, Art, go ahead and complete your story, sir. <laughs> sure will. And by the way, they were all shooting at us as well. Um, we sank the second one. I saw that one go down, if you will, on the radar. The third one disappeared from the radar, but I'm not sure. I, I couldn't report it as a definite kill. Um, overall, the elements of, of surprise, I think, really worked in our favor as they never, um, that uh, logistical path had never been interjected, interrupted before. Um, once the gunfight was over, we straightened the shoreline, and then um, I will say that the uh, um, we got out of there in a hurry. Um, so uh, <laughs> what we know is that it was under darkness of complete night. There was no telling how many American lives might have been saved by destroying all of those explosives. And um, certainly the Viet Cong had no idea what had hit them, how it had hit them, etc. Um, wow. It was a, a, a true victory, if you will. Very good. Well, uh, tell us about the what you call the gunfire support missions at sea. What, what was that? Uh, okay. Um, let's see. I'll describe two things for you. One, very quickly, is when all of this is going on, um, most of the crew is involved in uh, shooting the machine guns, supplying the machine guns with ammunition, etc. So the commanding officer is up in the wheelhouse where you steer the boat, you look at the radar. I controlled the... Uh, the searchlight, which was over my head, um, and I controlled uh, by sound-powered phone what the different uh, positions were doing on the boat in terms of where they should fire, when they should fire, etc. Um, that also makes you the best target. So, uh, fortunately, um, I never had to duck too much, but I do remember a bullet zinging over my, my ear, uh, and I'll remember that sound for the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> The gunfire support mission, um, one of my classmates uh, uh, and his gunboat intercepted one of the trawlers that uh, I was describing earlier, and it headed for the beach and ran aground uh, in the area south of where we were patrolling. Uh, he, he pursued it, 
got in close to the beach uh, to try to get to the the North Vietnamese trawler, and his boat took uh, many, many hits, including uh, the first Coast Guardsmen to be wounded in action in Vietnam, um, and he literally had to uh, pull back. Um, I got there having run at full speed and spent the entire night um, strafing the beach, uh, strafing the trawler where it was uh, aground close to the beach, um, and waiting for the early morning when um, the Air Force was able to come in with a flight of Phantom Jets and literally light up the beach because the Viet Cong expecting a, um, a vessel to, to be supplying them uh, had the entire beach armed to protect it. Um, this one didn't work for the VC or the North Vietnamese, and um, we, we really had a, a very, very successful mission, uh, having spent all night taking fire from the beach, shooting back at the beach, and once again being very fortunate in not having any men wounded in action or killed in action. Did you, did you ever receive any uh, you know, uh, critical damage to your boat? Fortunately, never any critical. Um, I had sandbagged certain areas of the boat on the close to all the gun emplacements, so the, the gunners, if they were taking uh, taking fire from the enemy, had a place to duck and hide, if you will. Um, but the aluminum superstructure—how <clears throat> uh, would I describe this? If a bullet went in one side and the bullet hole were the size of a dime or a quarter, it would come out the other side about three or four or five inches in size because the bullet would flatten as it would hit each layer of um, aluminum on its way out. So we looked like a piece of Swiss cheese more than once, um, but we fortunately never um, sustained any serious, serious damage, and uh, minor damage was all something that we could fix, and we fixed uh, on our own. Art sounds to me like you're born under a lucky star, son. <laughs> Whatever it took, we had it, fortunately, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, you, you were very fortunate. Your crew was very fortunate. But I know uh, the Coast Guard had some, some losses in Vietnam. you want to tell us about some of that? Uh, the, the first and saddest loss, if you will, was one of my classmates. His name is David Brostrom. David was assigned... Um, to uh, Division 11 up in Da Nang, and he was, they, so they patrolled basically um, the area up to North Vietnam, uh, and his boat was mistakenly um, identified as an enemy vessel. It was attacked by three Air Force jets in the middle of the night, uh, and uh, Dave was killed, and several members of his boat were um, wounded, and uh, at 25 years of age, uh, a good friend of mine um, was uh, was killed and died there, and then I was asked to, uh, or assigned to transfer up to North Vietnam, up to Da Nang, I'm sorry, um, and re retrieve his boat. Uh, I was responsible for overseeing all of the repairs to it, and uh, the new crew that came aboard, I trained them, uh, and then turned it over to uh, a Coast Guard Academy graduate who took over uh, in my place. Uh, and then I was fortunate enough to uh, return home to what 
turned out to be uh, my four-month-old daughter, who I had never seen until I met her in the uh, jetway at Kennedy Airport in New York uh, upon my return to the United States. Wow. Wow. What a story. Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, what were the what were the casualties for the Coast Guard in Vietnam? Do you know that? Uh, he, I don't remember the exact numbers. Uh, there were about eight thousand um, Coast Guardsmen stationed in Vietnam, and wow. if I didn't didn't mention um, that included rescue helicopter uh, pilots, because that's one of the things that the Coast Guard does extremely well. Uh, I. I Less than a hundred killed or wounded in action, primarily wounded. Um, we, we did very well on a per capita basis, if you will, um, in, in very, very dangerous work. Wow. Uh, we were talking earlier before the show that you had a uh, book about the Coast Guard action in Vietnam. You want to talk a little bit about that? Because I don't think folks realize what the Coast Guard went through over there. Sure. Um, I'll do the best I can. Um, but Coast Guard, by experience, etc., um, you get to a place like Vietnam and all the things that the Coast Guard do, does as part of its um, normal duties uh, now had to be done in a place where um, really none of it existed to any level of what I will call expertise. And what I mean by that is um, Coast Guard is responsible for aids to navigation. Well, essentially there was very little in Vietnam, and uh, as I said, 90% of uh, the supplies that came to Vietnam from America came by um, merchant vessels, so you needed aids to navigation, and they needed to be maintained. Um, there was essentially, when we got there, no port security, so you had dangerous cargo being unloaded, and uh, I, I remember <laughs> one example where... Um, one of the Vietnamese locals who was um, working uh, at, at the um, ammunition shipyard had picked up a, a load of recoilless um, rifle um, ammunition and put it on the back of his truck. And the way he dumped it off was to take his truck and accelerate uh, backwards very quickly and then hit the brakes as hard as he could and it would all fly off the tailgate and land on the ground. And this was stuff that could blow up. So, <laughs> You think about that and you say, all right, we need dangerous cargo expertise. Um, in addition to that, uh, the Coast Guard, of course, did search and rescue. Um, I, I, one of the things that I remember is that uh, there were over 2,200 um, Allied airplanes that um, were shot down. And if you think about that, that means that 2,200 or more people, um, well, not necessarily, but let's say if half of them went down wherever they went down, they had to be rescued. That was done at sea by the Coast Guard, primarily, and um, a lot of the land-based uh, rescue was done with helicopters, and several of those helicopter pilots were Coast Guard pilots. In fact, um, I know at least one of the pilots, uh, again, someone I knew, because we Coast Guard officers were a small, close-knit group, uh, by the name of Lance Egan, also uh, was shot down and, and died in, in an effort to rescue an Air Force pilot. So wow. um, the Coast Guard was very, very busy um, with port security, aids to navigation, merchant ships, safety, search and rescue, and uh, 
dangerous cargo uh, unloading. We well, did a lot. So yeah, you did, of- sir. Uh, and that is that is part of the Vietnam War that very few people realize. Uh, I, I was shocked to find out that I received a lot of emails when I uh, told folks about your interview. I didn't even know the Coast Guard was in Vietnam. And I don't think a lot of people did. Uh, and, and your motto says it all. Uh, you don't have you, what you have to go out, but you don't have to you come don't back. Don't have to come back. Correct. Wow. Now we were talking before the show, and you had told me that you have visited over one hundred countries. Tell me about that. Well, that that's just uh, primarily uh, being a, a, a fortunate part of uh, my business life. Um, I was uh, I owned an executive recruiting company, uh, which, um, if you uh, were uh, a leading salesperson, um, you could win a trip to some one or more foreign countries. Um, and uh, in nineteen six, let's see, nineteen. 84, we won our first trip, and it was so wonderful that I promised my wife I would never not win one again. And um, (laughs) in in all the subsequent years, I was able to live up to that promise. Um, Plus, once you get the travel bug, at least for my wife and myself, um, you want to do it on your own. So we were making uh, two or three international trips per year, uh, every year for about 20 or 25 years. And and we got to see our... A lot of the world, either uh, on land trips or via cruises, uh, and came to further appreciate um, how wonderful a country we live in and how proud I was to serve in it then and would still be today. Uh, And in fact, when I was a cadet, um, we did overseas uh, cruises as part of our cruise training. And I never mentioned this to you, Pete, but I sailed to Europe twice on a, a sailing ship, the Coast Guard training bark. Uh, a square rigger, if you will. Wow. Um, and, and most people don't know that as well. But you learn basic seamanship no better way than going out under sail. What, I, a little bit off the cuff here, what is the strangest or most interesting country that some folks don't know about? Okay, all right. Boy, I, we could talk to you all day long, uh, Art. Folks, thanks very much. Art, thank you for the interview. Fascinating information. Thank you so much. Folks, we'll be back next week, Wednesday, 10 o'clock. Please join us. Thank you, Art. Thank you, Pete. My honor. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.